This program is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. Download their free mobile app and use the promo code BEST during activation for a chance to win $100. And welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, NPR, Jim Hightower, Johan Hari, The Onion Radio News, The Young Turks, The Moth Podcast, Citizen Radio, and Dan Savage with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. And this episode does contain profanity. Here, here is your last quote. It has been a really tough weekend. That was a man named Harold Camping. He was speaking Monday. (laughs) He was upset that something he predicted for last Saturday night didn't happen. What? Oh, the... Oh, it's not Reformation. It's everybody... It's one of those R words. What what, what was supposed to happen? Revelation. Revelation, the rapture, is that what you mean? The end of the world is what we're talking about. I thought you said Reformation. I know all you guys follow the news pretty closely, so you may have noticed the world did not end on Saturday night. You were probably as disappointed as Mr. Camping was in this, as you were looking forward to either going to heaven or stealing the large-screen TVs of those who did. <laughs> didn't he say that it was just fuzzy math, though? Does it, didn't he say it's going to happen this fall? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, well, this is the funny thing. I mean, what It's going to be cold in the fall. I would rather the rapture happen It's sort of now. a slow-burn rapture. Here's the thing. He keeps predicting specific dates. He's done this twice before. If you include this time, he's done it the third time. He says it will happen in October, I think. Yeah, if anybody ever needed to learn the suffix-ish. Yeah. <laughs> that guy. The Archdiocese of Philadelphia suspended 21 priests earlier this month. They've been accused of sexually abusing minors. The move came in the wake of a scathing grand jury report. It said the Archdiocese is keeping suspected priests in ministry without letting anyone know. It also raises the question, with all of the safeguards the Catholic Church has put in place, how could this happen now? NPR's Barbara Bradley Haggerty reports. A couple of years ago, the Philadelphia Archdiocese heard about three priests who had allegedly raped two boys. They gave the priests files to law enforcement, and a grand jury began to investigate. Then the grand jury stumbled on a bombshell. District Attorney Seth Williams says a church employee testified that there were many other people the panel should know about. The grand jury found that a policy of zero tolerance was not actually in effect, and that there were many priests that had allegations made against them that were still in the act of ministry. Thirty-seven priests, according to the grand jury's report released last month. After that, the archdiocese hired Gina Maisto-Smith, a former prosecutor, to look closely at those priests. The church put 21 of them on administrative leave while Smith investigates further. Smith says she's seen no evidence that church officials intentionally protected sexual predators. I can say with clarity that I saw the archdiocese doing what it could do within the systems that it had and making the best decisions 
they could under the circumstances. So, if the Archdiocese was following all the right procedures, how did these priests fall through the cracks? It turns out there's a lot of play in the rules, says Terry McKiernan, president of bishopaccountability.org, a watchdog group. He says when an allegation comes in, the bishop doesn't have to pursue it very far. A bishop may decide at a very early stage that an allegation is without merit. And if he does that, we never even get to the stage of a priest being removed. McKiernan believes that's what happened in Philadelphia. He notes that the Archdiocese forwarded only seven of the 21 cases to its review board. That's the group of lay people who are supposed to hear every allegation of sexual abuse and act to protect the victims. Philadelphia may not be alone, says William Gavin. Gavin is a former FBI agent who is hired by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops to audit every diocese and make sure they're preventing and reporting sexual abuse cases. It was an audit in quotes. I think it was more of a program review than anything else. Gavin says he could ask things like, are you doing background checks on priests and employees? But he was not allowed to look at their records. We didn't have the benefit of drilling down into personnel files to see what might be there. They were off limits. Gavin's auditors had to depend on the bishop's word about whether anyone had been accused of abuse. And the questionnaire they used wouldn't have spotted the Philadelphia 21 anyway, because it only asks about allegations within the past year, not older cases. Terry McKiernan says the only way to get real answers is to have an outsider look at the priest's files. Wherever law enforcement actually takes a look at the situation and has access to the files, they come up with a much more drastic and much more worrisome conclusion. For example, McKiernan says in Cleveland, the diocese said that 28 priests had been accused of abuse. When a prosecutor looked at the files, he raised the estimate to 145. When the New Hampshire Attorney General looked at the files of the Diocese of Manchester, 27 new names emerged. And McKiernan has obtained a recent document from the Boston Archdiocese that says there are 40 credibly accused priests whose names are still unknown to the public. Even critics say that most dioceses are trying to do their best, protecting victims and still giving due process to priests who may have been wrongly accused. It's a difficult line to walk, says Donna Farrell, a spokesperson for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Many people think that the Archdiocese doesn't get it. We do. And the task, the job ahead of us is to recognize where we've fallen short and to let our actions speak to our resolve. The faithful will surely be watching, and so will prosecutors. Barbara Bradley Haggerty, NPR News. There's never been a better time to check out Stitcher for your mobile device. When you activate their free app using the promo code BEST, you'll get instant access to thousands of podcasts streamed directly to you without syncing. You'll be entered automatically to win $100, and you'll help support Best of the Left at no cost to you. No reason not to check it out, so head to your preferred app market and download the free Stitcher app just named the best app ever for your iPhone, Android, BlackBerry, or Pre, and be sure to use the promo code BEST during activation. try to avoid religious commentary, but good God, what is it about confession that the Catholic hierarchy can't seem to grasp?
The grotesque epidemic of priestly pedophilia that has roiled the church has been under assessment in a five-year, $2 million study commissioned by our country's Catholic bishops. At long last, the report is out, but not the truth. Instead, the panel concludes that this horror is not the fault of the church, nor even of the abusive priests. Rather, cue the heavenly music. The 60s made them do it. Yes, it's the Woodstock defense. The diabolical theory of this study is that, quote, social chaos created by the tie-dyed sexual revolution of the 1960s so discombobulated otherwise chaste and honorable men that they used their religious authority to rape 10-year-olds and teenagers. Dios míos, have mercy! That conclusion is as perverted as what the priests did and as inexcusable as the hierarchy's ongoing denials and cover-ups. Start with the obvious. Rape is not about sex. It's a gross abuse of power. Second, I was around in the 1960s, and while I couldn't seem to attract much free love for myself, I can testify that the sexual revolution of the time most definitely did not even contemplate, much less advocate, old men in dark robes molesting children who had been placed in their care. This is Jim Hightower saying, The church's report is as silly as the right wing's current fiction that all would be well in America if only the 60s had never happened. Excuse me, but enormous progress was made in those years by women, civil rights champions, environmental advocates, and yes, by American culture itself. The Pope should shelve this nonsense and lead the world in a new liturgical chant. Pedophilia is not a social habit that one adopts, it's a sickness. Now, the recent podcast where I argued with lots of religious people was one of the most popular I've done, and it produced some fantastic hate mail, which I want to thank the people who sent. One of the best, from someone called James Alcott, said this. Dear Mr. Hari, I had never doubted God's existence until I heard your podcast. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't persuaded by your juvenile sick form arguments. But it did make me wonder how a god could have made somebody so fucking stupid and ugly and with such an annoying voice. You are an abortion of humanity. No, you are not even the abortion. You are the scrapings on the abortion room floor. Did I mention you really are fucking ugly? So, just for James Alcott, this is another podcast in which you can hear me taking on religious people. Uh, last year I was asked to go on Newsnight against the uh, Christian writer Anne Atkins. There had been a big reported rise in homophobic violence in Britain, uh, which was announced that week, and our discussion was introduced with a film explaining that. And here's what happened when we talked. Jackie Long. Well, joining me now in the studio is novelist and columnist Anne Atkins and Johan Harry, columnist for The Independent. Johan Harry, first of all, wh where does this problem lie? Has something significant actually changed for the worse? 
Well, I think crime always goes up in recessions, but it does seem from the British Crime Survey that homophobic crime is going up a bit more than general violent crime, which is really worrying. And I think you know, there are two institutions we really need to look at to understand this. The first is schooling. Almost all these attacks have been by young men who've recently come through the school system. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the only place in Britain where it's still acceptable to be violently homophobic is Britain's schools. The most detailed study of this was by the University of London. It found 43% of gay kids get beaten up and 17% get told they're going to be killed. Now, that's an astonishingly high level of violence and these kids are then taking that out beyond the school gates because schools aren't tackling it. But the one bit of really good news is in the, the study found that in the schools that do have a consistent policy of tackling homophobic abuse, whether religious or non-religious, and tackling homophobic bullying, the violence fell by 60%. We can deal with this. But the fact is that Anne Atkins in many schools is not being dealt with, is mm. it? I, I think what I agree with Johan totally that this, the worrying thing is this seems to be going up when you would expect it to be going down. In general tolerance of homosexuality in society seems to be far more than it was 10 or 20 years ago. This kind of violent, you know, homophobic attack seems to be much worse. Now, I suspect the main problem, which has been kind of touched on in some of the reporting, is that it's not taken seriously enough. Why did it take you know, why can it take 12 days to inquire why a lesbian couple have been beaten up in Brighton, you know. But I wonder too, and this is very much a question rather than a statement, but I wonder whether there are some things we're not, some difficult questions we're not asking. If you take, I mean, a parallel, like why are more people voting for the BNP, you can get terribly hot under the collar and say they're a stupid bunch of racist censors, mm. or you can actually say, what is it, what's making you feel threatened? Why do you feel the need to, you know, to, and, mm. and I wonder if, um, as, as our tolerance of homosexuality has increased, mm -hmm. So our intolerance of people who find homosexuality unacceptable has also increased. And I, I don't know, this is just a question whether there's a problem there that our liberalism can sometimes be very illiberal towards people who don't agree with us. Yes, but of course in the Stephen Gately debate we saw that, <coughs> didn't we? Uh, yeah, well, yes indeed. I mean, you know, we, may be liberal, not, we may be liberal, but of course the first chance. Uh, yes, and... and uh, that's a very sort of complex thing because somebody says something we don't like and there is very much a sort of knee-jerk mm. reaction. What, you know, what we need is the kind of liberalism that allows people but you're to not, express... But, well, I, I was going to say, we're so short of time, I really want to go on to this point with yeah. Johan and you. Is, is there a danger, in a way, with the rise of faith schools where there are different teachings and different views on homosexuality, that that actually may be a problem. Yeah. The University of London study found that in, in uh, faith schools, gay kids were 10% more likely to be bullied violently, and also 25% less likely to ever tell anyone. If you think about how isolating that must be, to never describe your sexuality to anyone, and I know the most heartbreaking letters I get from kids are kids who are at faith schools who are being told, you know, you're going to burn in hell if you ever express your sexuality. And I know Anne believes, I know Anne wouldn't phrase it that way, but you do believe that gay people should never have sex, and it's immoral well, if they do. Yeah, it, it, and I think those attitudes do actually lead to a very disturbing climate. That, that I is, absolutely believe in your right to express them, but they lead to a disturbing climate. That is climate. very, very depressing if that is true, and I'm not, not doubting it, but if that's true, it's very depressing because it is totally at variance with true faith. Now, uh, you've singled out, I mean, the, the Christian view, which I espouse, as do Orthodox Jews and Muslims and many of other faiths, is that sex is exclusively for marriage. That's not particularly an anti-gay thing. It's but a, you don't but believe but gay people should be allowed to get well, married? <laughs> 
No, I so they should never have sex. No, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I would say you have said that in the uh, past, though. Well, okay, I've probably said many stupid things in the past. I've said some very stupid things. Well, I'm glad you admit it was stupid. But I'm, glad, <laughs> no, I'm glad that's real progress. Right? It's a real sign of progress that you're okay. admitting you've made stupid and homophobic comments before. Of course, I've made stupid mistakes in the past. But um, no, but uh, sorry, I've completely lost my. Well, you're, what we're talking about is you, you talking about schools for Orthodox Jews, talking about Muslim schools, talking about Roman Catholic schools, for example. Right, if homosexual. If, if aggression towards homosexuals is higher in those schools, that is very, very depressing and totally contrary to those faiths. Because but unfortunately, I understand that you think it's contrary to those faiths, and I understand that's sincere because you think that you're giving the message A, homosexuality, homosexual acts are immoral, B, they shouldn't happen, but C, don't be nasty to gays. But I don't think you can be surprised <laughs> when people hear one and two but miss no, out no, three. No, no, no. A far more important message of Christianity is. is Tolerance and love, and you know the well, sort of but things. But not that tolerance of them ever having so, sex. They, no, they should never have sex. That's really stupid. No, and it's not stupid. I'm sorry. If you no. believed that black people should never have sex, people would agree immediately that was shocking. Look, but saying gay people should never have sex is just as bigoted. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid we could I'm go on. Go there because she prays a little different to a God up there. You say you're a Christian because God made you. You say you're a Muslim because God made you. You say you're a Hindu and the next man a Jew. Then we all kill each other because God told us to. No, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Bonjour, bonjour. It's the Onion Radio News. God is quietly phasing the Holy Ghost out of the Trinity. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Calling the Holy Trinity, quote, overstaffed and over budget, the Lord God announced plans today to downsize the group by slowly phasing out the Holy Ghost. The supreme being and giver of life made the announcement during a collect phone call to reporters. I felt this was a sensible and necessary decision. Clearly, the Holy Ghost has to go. According to God's plan, the Holy Ghost will be given fewer and fewer responsibilities until his formal resignation from Trinity duty following Easter services on April 20th. Thereafter, the father and son shall be referred to as the Holy Duo. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Now, Rick Perry is actually uh, somewhat unpopular in his own state. His approval rating is 
41%, his disapproval rating is 42%. It's pretty close, but an approval rating of 41% is not awe-inspiring, and if you're going to run for president and you only have that kind of approval in your own state, that's not very good. Part of the reason is he has this gigantic deficit he created, $27 billion, right? So that has not helped, and he's got some draconian laws that obviously uh, Democrats and independents are not in favor of either. So he's got some problems in his home state, and actually on Fox News they're going to ask him about it, and he has a fascinating answer. Let's watch. You have kind of like the Chris Christie phenomenon. Very popular outside your state. Still popular, but not nearly as popular within your state. And there are even Tea Party groups within your state who like you but don't love you. Who say that when it comes to things like not spending a rainy day fund, an idea you came up with. Right. Um, you say one thing and do another. What do you say? I say that uh, a prophet is generally not loved in their hometown. Uh, that's uh, both biblical and practical. Who, who's a prophet? Who's a prophet? You can't call yourself a prophet. These guys are unbearable, man. Look, there's a saying in Chinese, too, something along the lines of uh, foreign monks are wiser, right? I, I get the saying. I understand, you know, because if you know the guy, you know, con uh, familiarity breeds contempt. It's another way of putting it. But I would have put it in another way. I, I wouldn't go on national television and say, well, prophets are not liked in their hometowns, and obviously I'm a prophet. Who the hell do you think you are? I, does that appeal to people? Does it appeal to religious people where a guy comes out and says he's a prophet? Look, I know he's not being literal, but if I was a politician, I would say, well, I don't mean to call myself a prophet, I'm just saying, or I would have picked a different analogy. They're unbearable. JR. There's the look on his face. You can see it. it, it like, and I don't know. I don't study Rick Perry all the time, but there's a look on his face, and I don't know if it's always there. As soon as he leaned back, he's like, "Well, it's the biggest smug look on your face." It's like he's already taken the dick pics. It's like whatever. <laughs> you know, oh, it would be awesome <laughs> if he did. <laughs> well, because of course that's the only thing. That You're right. He's got that smug look, man. Like, <laughs> please, <laughs> I'm a prophet. I am Moses. Now, maybe it came from yes. how everybody's, you know, his, the Gingrich guys left, and everybody's saying, oh, Rick Perry, you should get in, Rick Perry, you should get in. People are pumping him up right now. Yeah. So he's smelling himself. <laughs> I haven't heard that term, smelling himself. That doesn't sound good. Okay. So, um, we'll see what kind of damage Rick Perry can do in the, in the race, Mr. Prophet. are raised with a religion and I'm one of those people that was raised with two there was our official religion my family is and I was at the time conservative evangelical Christians but then there was our unofficial faith and hope we had in Mary Kay cosmetics <laughs> um, many of the women in my family had been Mary Kay beauty consultants since I was a child and I loved Jesus as long as I could remember, but that Mary Kay thing was, I was hoping to dodge that bullet. 
Um, I was this brainy grunge girl from Boulder County. I wore hemp jewelry and clothes from the Salvation Army. I had moral um, objections to wearing makeup. And when I got a scholarship to go out of state for college, I thought I'd made my big escape. But my last visit home, I listened to one recruiting tape too many. (laughs) And the logic and reason finally got to me, and I signed the dotted line. And I started my business as a Mary Kay Beauty consultant. Now, on paper, the business plan looks foolproof. All you're supposed to need is to have one friend to host a party for you, where you sell skincare and makeup to her friends. Then you're supposed to book two more every time. So your date book is never empty. But I could never book two more. I used the script. I thought I was fun to be with. I don't know what the problem was. (laughs) But luckily for me, there was like a hundred other ways they trained us to get bookings. And one of these ways was to strike up seemingly natural conversations with perfect strangers. And we had, we had a name for this. We called this Worm Chatter. <laughs> and I thought, damn it, I am going to rock this. I'm going to be the queen of Worm Chatter. So what I'm about to tell you, I did this um, for a very long time, about two or three days a week for two or three hours a day. I would get dressed up in my business suit, and I'd put on all my makeup, and I'd pack my bag full of samples, and I would drive to Target. And in Target, I would get my red shopping cart, and I'd pretend I was shopping for items, but really, I was just hunting for women. I was, um, I was looking for women who looked cute or friendly or approachable. When I found somebody like this, then I would just discreetly follow her through the store (laughs) until we could be together in an aisle alone. (laughs) And then I would appear to just be walking by normally and I would slow down and in the most casual way possible I would say these words that I'd rehearsed a hundred million times. I would say Excuse me, can I ask you a quick question? I'm Jen with Mary Kay, and we just came out with a new line of lip glosses, and I need some women's opinions of it. You know, I have some samples here in my bag. Is there any reason why you wouldn't want to take one home and try it? And this part was really important. We are trained to smile and nod while we ask the question. It has to do with the nonverbal communication and mirroring. It's very advanced. (laughs) And... um, And if she said yes, I'd give her the sample, I'd get her phone number. When I called her back later to thank her, I would offer her a complimentary appointment with me. And I wouldn't mention that all my appointments were complimentary because it just didn't seem important. (laughs) So at the same time I was doing this for my career, my husband and I were also helping to lead programs for our local church. And this was the kind of church that was trying to be really hip and modern. It met in a strip mall. And we had a rock band, a rock band leading worship up front. The pastor was this 40-somethings British guy, and he really wanted to attract 20-somethings. So we were a hot commodity. We were right in the demographic. And we started to get promoted up into higher and higher echelons of leadership. So we were invited to the leadership team meeting and then the core leadership team meeting. And I still remember my first night at one of these meetings. And I don't know exactly what I was expecting, 
But I think I'd always imagined them to be kind of soulful events. And I was really dismayed to show up and discover it was this really tedious conversation about branding and marketing and what the church's next advertising campaign was going to be. So it didn't take too long before these two worlds, the church and Mary Kay, started to look more and more similar. Um, They both had the lure, and Mary Kay was giving out free samples, but at the church we were having free events to try and get people in the doors. In both worlds, we were couching everything we did inside a conversation about service. So Mary Kay's company tagline at the time was, changing women's lives. Which, if you think about it, isn't that different from saving people's souls. <laughs> and um, and we, really, we really believed it. We really thought we were doing this, even though nobody's motives are that pure. And in both worlds, I was being trained all the time to listen to people everywhere I went for whatever was missing or not working about their life and offer what we had as the solution. So if you needed time or money or flexibility, Mary Kay might be perfect for you. But if you're struggling with your marriage or you've had a recent loss, maybe you're questioning the meaning of life, call me crazy, but have you considered maybe Jesus is the answer? (laughs) And soon I just started to feel like a 24-hour saleswoman, and it started to get confusing, like which hat I was wearing at which time. Until... One day I was in Target with my little red cart and I saw this lovely looking redhead who smiled so big when I smiled at her and I started into my script. Excuse me, can I ask you a quick question? Except this time it started to sound kind of flat like those pull string dolls that sound kind of wonky at the end. And um, suddenly I was just thinking Does she need Mary Kate or does she need Jesus? Does she need Mary Kate or does she need Jesus? And I don't know which one I offered her, but she said no. Because I was acting crazy. Um, And she turned and walked away. And... I realize the problem with whenever you have something, whether it's a religion or a business or anything else that you think is the right answer for everybody, through that lens, you can't help but look at everyone in the world as if they're broken and need to be fixed. And I didn't want to do that anymore. So I put my card away at the front of the store and I drove home. The next night was my weekly success meeting. And the director was up front telling us, giving us all the information about the new lipstick formula and the changes that were being made. And I started to look around the room at these women. And they were either my friends who I'd like recruited into it or my relatives who had recruited me into it. And I was thinking about how devastating it would be when I quit because I wasn't just rejecting everything they stood for, but I was letting down my friends. I'd gotten them into it. I was bailing on them. And then... My relatives, the people who had recruited me, their income depended on me. Their income, their status, all of our fortunes were tied in together. And I thought, but is this really changing women's lives the way I hoped it would? And the director started passing around mirrors and lipstick samples for us to try it ourselves. And I thought, no, I don't think so anymore. And a couple days later, 
was the church leadership meeting. And the pastor was telling us that the church's new mission statement needed to have five points, one for every finger on the hand, so people could remember it. And I started looking around this room and thinking about what they would think about me when I quit. They would think I was backsliding and falling off the wagon, but it was even worse than that. They would think I was going to hell, that my children were going to hell. And if I was wrong, maybe they would be right. And I thought, but is this really saving people's souls, this, all this that we're doing? And the pastor interrupted to say that all five points needed to start with the same letter. (laughs) And I thought, no. I don't think so anymore. And so that was when I stopped trying to save the world. And I decided to save myself instead from this life I didn't want anymore. And it it really cost me. I lost my identity. I lost belonging. I lost the ability to ever be that certain or righteous about anything ever again. And if you can imagine what it's like to lose a faith, and then imagine what it's like to lose two at once, Because even though Mary Kay was a business, it wasn't just that. It was a way I thought the world worked. It's a way I thought that we could all win and everybody could get what they needed. It was really devastating. I felt like I might not ever be able to trust myself again. The last piece of our exit strategy was our move to New York. We were going to get geographic distance, start fresh someplace else. We landed in Brooklyn in a neighborhood called Park Slope. And everywhere we went, people were either trying to recruit us into or warn us against joining the Park Slope Food (laughs) Co-op. And it seemed so unobjectionable, you know? Like, who can argue against cheap, organic, environmentally friendly food, community-run And part of me was really tempted because I thought, I can have my identity back. Everyone will know I'm a good person. (laughs) And I can belong again. But there was something about the way that the people we talked to were just so convinced it was the right thing for everybody that felt creepily familiar. (laughs) And I thought, I know where that path leads. So when one particularly zealous friend cornered me one day and said, are you going to join or not? Are you in or are you out? (laughs) Just took a deep breath and I looked her in the eyes and I said, sorry, I don't do religions anymore. I 
hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. A few years ago, the absurd Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, suggested that Sharia law should be integrated into British law in our family and domestic courts. And I took part in a panel at that time saying why I think that's a despicable and ridiculous idea. And the discussion ranged pretty widely onto multiculturalism and how it's used as a cover for religion. Here's how it went. I think it's a big issue. I won't call it the biggest issue in the world, um, but I think it's a very, very big issue. And I think it, uh, part of the problem is the way we're responding in Europe is we have actually quite a flawed ideological uh, framework, which is multiculturalism. And when you criticise multiculturalism, it's very important that you preface it when someone like me criticises it, it's very important to preface it by saying, this is usually lumped in with immigration. You'll hear the right saying, multiculturalism and immigration have caused X, Y or Z problem. I passionately believe in, oh well I wouldn't exist if it were not for immigration. I passionately believe in immigration. I think we need more immigrants and more refugees in this country, not fewer, but I believe it is a disastrous way to welcome them. To say, hello Muslim, you have arrived, here is a Muslim box for us to put you in, where you will be a Muslim forevermore and you will behave in a way that, that our appointed Muslim spokesmen, who happen to be extremely reactionary imams, think you should behave. I think we should say, hi, you're here, you want to pay taxes, you want to be British, you're one of us and we will treat you exactly the same. You are an equal human being, you are not defined by your group. If I, can, if I can give the, the most, well, I think it's the most egregious example within Europe of where I think multiculturalism has gone wrong, let's look at Germany. The German constitution has a requirement, I think a terribly flawed requirement, to respect a person's religion. And I just want to give a couple of quick examples of what that has meant. There was a, a woman uh, called Zainab who was a German woman. Her parents had come from Algeria when she was a child. And she got married to a man who was extremely violently abusive. And there was no question, there was no question about the evidence. He was convicted of beating her and beating her child. And in Germany, you have to be separated for two years before you can be granted a divorce. If you want to get it sooner, and obviously she did, she wanted this disgusting man out of her life, you have to go to court. So she went to court. She presented the evidence, no one disputed the evidence, his lawyers didn't dispute the evidence, and he'd been violent. The judge, who was a female German judge, came back and said, well, I've looked at this case, and there's no question this man is abusive. But equally, the Constitution requires that I look at your religion. And I've been reading the Quran and the, the Hadith. And she read out the passage from the, the Hadith, which actually recommends domestic violence if your wife gets too uppity. And the judge effectively said, well, that's your culture. So for that reason, I'm declining your request. Have a good marriage. This is not an exception. This is not rare in Germany at the moment. There have been a number of so-called honour killings in which women have expressed 
the freedom that I had taken for granted all my life to choose my own partner, to behave in any way I want to sexually, and uh, the, her, in which the woman's relatives conspired in a premeditated way to murder her. And the verdicts were reduced to manslaughter, and the judge in one case said, I'm doing this because I understand that this woman violated your Anatolian moral precepts. Another example, this is a much smaller example, but I think it's very revealing. There was a 14-year-old girl who wanted to go on a school trip. She happened to be, well, she wasn't, she didn't self-identify as Muslim. Her family were Muslim. And the school trip was further away than a camel could travel in a day, which is as far as the Quran says you can go from your father. Uh, but the girl wanted to go, and her parents wouldn't let her. So the school, entirely to their credit, I don't think a British school would do this, went to court for the right for this girl to go where she wanted. And the judge said, and these were his words, Under law, we recognize that a retarded person has to be accompanied by a minor. I see no reason why this should not apply to Muslim women. Now, there is no doubt that judge thought he was being terribly tolerant. And yet it led him to a situation where he was comparing Muslim women to the mentally disabled. The problem with multiculturalism is it puts nice liberal people into alliance with the most profoundly reactionary parts of immigrant communities against the very people we should be siding with. Women who want to live their lives their way, gay people who want to live their lives their way. And the, the problem with this is as well, it gets tied up with the language of respect. When I criticise Islam, as I criticise Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism, I was even once called fat by the Dalai Lama, the, um, the, I get told, no, you have to respect my beliefs. I respect you as a human being too much to respect your ludicrous superstitions. I... I... I do not respect a book that says I should be killed for being gay. I do not respect a book that says Mariam should be killed for being a so-called apostate. Indeed, I abhor that book as I abhor the Bible and the Torah. And it is essential that we retain our freedoms to be able to say that. We are finally in this country getting rid of our blasphemy law about Christianity. But at the same time, a de facto blasphemy law about Islam is being introduced, enforced not by the state, but by jihadis. Not very far from here, a brave man tried to publish a book, uh, The Jewel of Medina. It's not a very good book, but it's, an imp it's a valuable book. I've re only read extracts from it. And it begins the process that Mark Twain and George Eliot and Bertrand Russell and Spinoza and various people did about Christianity and Judaism. It asks basic questions. Christianity and Judaism have lost their power to terrorize people about masturbation or homosexuality or other perfectly natural things, largely because they've been ridiculed. They've been reinterpreted and they've been ridiculed. It is being made impossible for Muslims to do that. This book, The Jewel of Medina, asks a question that I think would inject doubt into most Muslims' minds. It is a fact, insofar as we can establish any historical facts about the man known to us as Muhammad, that at the age of 53, he married a six-year-old girl, and three years later he had sex with her. We don't know if that was common in Arabia at that time. There's some speculation about it. It may not have been. We do know that nine-year-old girls, whatever their culture, wherever they are, do not like being penetrated by 53-year-old men. Now, actually, the jewel of Medina implies that she enjoyed it. Now, in any other context, that would be shocking. But the very fact that uh, the, the, the book discusses that means that the publisher, not far from here, was, was firebombed. Now, it is essential for Muslims that we're able to question that, because it will actually retain their religion at the most infantilized and backward and terrorizing stage if they can't ask these questions. Imagine what Christianity would look like today if Mark Twain had been pulped 
and the life of Brian was impossible to watch and you know George Eliot had been banned it would be a prof this would be a horrible place to live for people like me and a lot of people just one other very quick point another way of delegitimizing criticisms of Islam is to say that these are Western ideas so I mentioned Bangladesh earlier I was in Bangladesh earlier this year uh, in a children's home I met a 15 year old girl she loved to sing it was the thing she most loved and when she turned 11 she was told she couldn't sing anymore because she was a girl and it was disgusting for Muslim girls to sing. And she said to me, you know, that just seemed to me really stupid because I, this God thing just didn't seem right to me. And I thought if, even if there was a God, why would he let boys sing and not girls? Now she thought of that in a village in Bangladesh all on her own. It had nothing to do with anyone in the West. I've met gay people in Gaza and women in Baghdad who had exactly the same thoughts. It is a natural thing that if you present a preposterous, superstitious uh, piece of nonsense, naturally there will be a significant number of people who go, what? That's not right. And the only way you stop them is to terrorise them. That's not Western. That's not, that's not about Western values versus anti-Western values. We're talking about culture. Whose culture are we talking about? The culture of Zainab who wanted a divorce in Germany or the culture of the man who wanted to beat the shit out of her? Now, we have to make a choice about that culture. It's like saying the culture of the Deep South was slavery. Well, there were some people called slaves who didn't think that was their culture. And a lot of people sided with them and they prevailed. It's the Onion Radio News. The Pope wins a host-eating contest. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Pope John Paul II won the 14th annual Coney Island host-eating contest yesterday as he consumed 392 sanctified wafers in just under 12 minutes. Contest organizer and head judge Bishop Thomas Daly got a first-hand look at the action. In the last few seconds, bits of chewed-up wafers started coming right out of his nose. But we allowed it because none of it hit the ground, and I guess that's why he's the Pope. The elderly pontiff is said to be resting comfortably and plans to begin training soon for an upcoming sacramental wine-chugging contest slated to take place in Sydney, Australia, early next year. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at the So, Peace, Love, and Jamie is mad at religion again. Uh-oh, what happened? I mean, I've always been mad at religion. Yeah. Uh, it is... I don't like it. It's uh, it's not true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it produces bad results. These are just little details, Little though. details, right? 
Um, and, uh, but I'm also like uh, a progressive. And, and this is the problem that happens sometimes where, you know, they're, when I hear people saying, all Islam's bad, we have to invade Muslim countries, I'm like, yeah, I don't like it, <laughs> but that's not, that's not good. You it's know what I mean? It's a very firm counter argument. No, don't do I wouldn't. So. So, you know, I mean, I really haven't been, like, cracking down on it as much on this show as, as I used to. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think I just needed a reminder. Like, we'll crack down on certain topics. True. Another priest fucks a kid. Yeah, crack it down. The religious right is trying to infringe on a woman's right to choose. Crack it down. Right? We talk about those issues all the time. But religion as a whole, I haven't. And then this morning, there's this, like, nutty guy... Oh, is this on your Facebook wall? Yeah. Okay, I thought it. W- this is so crazy, you guys. That I thought it was a comic. Fucking, he is a comic. I thought he was being ironic or joking. I know. Um, well, I actually. So on my on my BlackBerry, whenever somebody posts something new on my wall, all the things they've ever posted on my wall come up. Oh, really? Yeah. And I saw that what he posted before this was. Happy birthday, the day God, in caps lock, created you. And that's when I was like, all right, that could be a joke or whatever. Yeah. And I don't, I don't care about that. Um, even if you are religious, I don't give a shit. Don't know why you're following me, but I don't give a shit, right? And I remember this kid, he's like a – he's sort of like – he's not on a UCB teams, but he's just like there all the time. Oh, my God. He's a New York comic yeah. and he goes to the UCB. Well, but he's just wow. like there. He's this improv guy. And he, like, he's come up to me and been like, a job before. Yeah. And so this morning, I'm assuming because he saw the name of my show that I'm doing Wednesday is called No War, No God, No Nickelback. Mm-hmm. And he wrote on my wall in caps lock, no, no God equals Nazi Germany. Right. Now, this is sort of a stock line that the religious right uses where they say, well, look at what happened in Nazi Germany. They tried to abolish all religion. Therefore, they were atheists, which they were not. Hitler, there are several pieces of uh, transcripts and letters from him where he obviously believed in God. Well, he said he was a Christian. Right. Uh, You know, but more importantly than that, because we can go back and forth. He said he was Christian. No, he said he was an atheist. He said he was – I mean he said he was Christian. Yeah. But more importantly than that, they used the tools of religion and appropriated it to themselves. Right. So now Hitler is God. Exactly. Yeah. And fascism is not atheism. <laughs> right. Now the first thing I said uh, was that. And he said Hitler is a pagan. And I'm like, you just said Hitler was an atheist. Like, so this is a crazy person. This is a crazy person. Yeah. But I just wrote this long thing where I was just like, here's what, um, here's what, here's all the bad things that have happened because of religion. So your Nazi Germany argument's out, and here are all the bad things that have happened because of religion. George Bush called the war in Iraq a crusade. Uh, the 9-11 attacks. Now- Israel-Palestine. Israel-Palestine. Now, a lot of this does have to do, you know, with what Allison and say, a lot of it does have to do with the economy. It wasn't straight up religion- but oftentimes they use the language of religion. Yeah, I mean, those guys were uh, 
radical. Yeah. No one's saying, and you know, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone always use this argument in South Park where they're like, so you're saying violence wouldn't exist if religion didn't exist. No. I, in fact, I don't know anyone making that argument. You know, violence happens for a plethora, a plethora of reasons. Religion is really dangerous, though, because it doesn't require any proof of anything. Right. You just can say, my God said to kill you. And it's like, I can't prove that's not true. My God said, please don't kill me. Like, it's just right. <laughs> right. And, but then I just kept going where I'm like, gays and lesbians not having equal rights. Women uh, fucking dying in childbirth. Uh, AIDS epidemic spreading in Africa. Priests fucking kids. The actual crusades. The war in Ireland. Blah, 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 blah. And he addressed, like, none of those. I just blocked him. Oh, and then I wrote, I was like... Also, uh, believe what you want, homie. I don't write on your fucking wall. That's the thing. You this got, is such like classic Christian like, shit. Like this is really confusing to me when people get mad at you for what you post on your personal Facebook wall. Right. Like it's one thing if I publish an article in a public forum and you want to write, you want to bang out an angry letter to, letter to the editor. That's you're right. But it was it was just a perfect microcosm of the difference between a lot of Christians and a lot of atheists where it was atheists have this reputation. I mean, we're the most hated minority in the country and we have this reputation of being these fucking evil, uh, you know, Newt Gingrich says that atheists and, sec- and secularism is like going to be the downfall of America. Who told and- him our plans? No, but it's like, I oh. wasn't doing anything. Like, how am I the downfall? I was just fucking sitting there minding my own business. And it was the crazy ass Christian who gets on my wall and starts attacking my beliefs. Well, that's the, that's Instead, they so make funny. it seem like it's the opposite. That's what they always say. They're like, there's a war on Christmas. There's a war on Christianity. Atheists don't give a shit about what they don't like is when you bring your crazy beliefs into the public sphere, into the secular world, because that's our home. Right. You know, when you start to fuck with public policy, when you're an elected government official, Rick Perry. Yeah. You Who now your, may run for president, they're saying. Yes. You bring your crazy-ass beliefs into the public sphere. That's the atheist business, and that's when they get upset. And then the Christians say, we're under attack. Right. Ah! You wouldn't have been if you stayed in your ridiculous playhouses. Right. That you call churches. No one's coming into your churches. You know, and, and another thing that I don't say a lot on this show, because we've gotten emails from some of the like coolest Christians who are even more politically active than, say, a lot of our atheist people. Yeah. But... So I don't really criticize them uh, as much because they're doing the right things. But what I will say to kind of challenge them a little bit is I believe that from what I've read, you guys are good enough people that you would be doing all of those wonderful things without God. Funny you bring this up. Uh, Dan Savage just gave a speech that I don't know if I should play the audio of. It's really, really good, where he's talking about how he got a lot of shit from Christians who were like, why don't you ever talk about the moderate Christians who agree with you, who agree that gay people are should have equal rights. Uh, it's not a sin, obviously. They don't believe that. And Dan Savage was like, why don't you stop going after me and go after the crazy Christians who are giving you a bad name? I've said that before, too, yeah, where I'm like, moderate Christians should be even more mad than us. At, it's like how we get more mad at Obama than we do Mitch McConnell. Because I'm like, Obama's supposed to be on my team.
Very quickly, I wanted to play the audio from the Dan Savage uh, Q&A I was just talking about. Here is Dan Savage responding to his sort of stereotyping of all Christians as hating gay people. Did you hear me? (laughs) Repeat it? No, you all heard it. I've been very outspoken about fundamentalist Christian churches and taking them to task. What would I say to affirming churches, to like United Church of Christ, people that welcome LGBT people? You know, I have a really bad habit when I get on cable news or radio, or sometimes in front of people, of starting to pound the podium and goddamn Christians this, goddamn Christians that. Uh, I'm not always careful to qualify Christian or to put it in quotes. Um, Not all Christians are anti-gay bigots. Uh, My mother, chief among them. I am not an anti-Christian bigot. The very last thing I did for my mother on her deathbed was rub through a hospital in search of a priest. I'm not hostile to religious people or belief or faith. I was uh, raised Catholic. I consider myself culturally Catholic. I've actually read the Bible, which is something a lot of Christians, particularly Catholics, haven't done. And I think there are great moral truths and great moral outrages in the Bible, including the slavery stuff and the masturbation stuff. Hello. Um, so I'm in no me- by no means, by no stretch, I'm not an, do I want to be perceived as, nor am I an anti-Christian bigot. Here's what drives me fucking up the wall about welcoming, affirming, tolerant, liberal, liberal Christians and their denominations. When I get into a lather and I'm pounding the podium about a Tony Perkins and I neglect to qualify Christian with right-wing fundamentalist batshit asshole douchebag Christian, (laughs) they sneak up behind me or get on email and they whisper, we're not all like that. I know. I know. You're not all like that. Tony Perkins doesn't. Tell him. Tell all the right-wing batshit fundamentalist Christians who have usurped Christianity, who claim to speak for all of you, the Christian Family Association, not the Evangelical Taliban Christian Family Association, (laughs) the Christian Family Association, they're the ones who have created the impression that to be Christian is to be anti-gay, that to identify yourself as Christian is to take sides in a war against lesbian, gay, bi, trans people in this country. Don't tell me. I know. Tell them. Be loud. We need liberal progressive Christians to be as active, organized, and loud as Tony Perkins. And you need to get in, not my face, when I argue with Tony Perkins on CNN and condemn his brand of Christianity, but get in his face. And get in CNN's face for helping to promote the idea that all Christians are anti-gay bigots. There was a poll out recently a couple of years ago, that showed that the fastest growing religious group in uh, the country is non-affiliated, no religion, no expressed preference. And the atheists, uh, the Christopher Hitchenses of the world, held that up and went, see, people are, you know, the, the Richard Hawkins, people, the, not Richard Hawkins, what is his name? Dawkins, Dawkins Richard Dawkins. Uh, said, oh, yay, look, our, our, our group is growing, more and more people. And then when they dug into the numbers, they found that a lot of those people who were unaffiliated were actually Christians who didn't want to identify publicly as Christian because that meant that they were anti-gay. How did that happen? I didn't do that by neglecting to qualify Christian on CNN. Tony Perkins did that. Donald Wildman did that. Maggie Gallagher did that. And they did it with the silent complicity of liberal Christians 
and liberal denominations that allowed them to hijack Christianity. So my advice to liberal and progressive Christians is stop whispering in my ear and start screaming in Tony Perkins' face. Hey, Jay, this is Amy calling from the Bronx, and I just wanted to say I love your show. I've been listening for about six months now, and um, I can't afford to join you yet, but I will be at some point. But I just want to let you know that I just clicked on the Amazon link on your website and purchased something through your website. So I think that's a great thing to have on there for someone like me uh, when I need to... uh, buy something from that as a gift for someone and I can know that it's going partly to you there you go I just want to let you know as a a happy uh, you know I'm not so happy I'm kind of conflicted about the Amazon thing but you know what I mean at least there's some good part to that so keep on making your program and I'll join you at some point in the future very happy year round I like the show a lot and keep it up okay talk to you Hey, Jay, it's Amy from the Bronx again. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say talk to you soon. That's just my way of hanging up. (laughs) So (laughs) ignore that last comment because I'm not going to talk to you soon. But um, anyway, (laughs) it was nice nice leaving this message. Okay, bye. Hi, this is Chris from Middletown, New York. And on the subject of net neutrality, I I don't think it takes much to realize that we need net neutrality preserved. And as far as those who want to complain about the uh, open marketplace, well, in 1996, you had the cable companies, uh, the phone companies, sitting around tables like organized crime figures, divvying up the country, which is why you won't find many places in the country where you have Comcast, Time Warner, and Cablevision all on the poles outside your house. You'll have one company or the other, so you can't play one off the other. They sat there and said, you know, divided up the region so that they wouldn't have to give the into consumer competition. Their their practices are not open market, free market, or you'd have the ability to choose uh, different providers, and they would then the price would go down and the speeds would go up. Now, as far as uh, what the consumers can do. Your local towns, they have the right, they license what, what wires are strung across your city, across your village, across your town. Who gave the right to the cable companies to put these things up and have a free market? We can decide to put a little pressure on any company that wants to play unfair. Let's protect our country. Let's protect our access. Thanks, and I enjoy the show. Hi, Jay. This is Sam from Maryland. I just wanted to update everyone on a clip that you used on June 17th about privacy rights from Slate Magazine. They talked about a Third Circuit Court ruling, FCC versus AT&T, which was actually unanimously overruled this year. And the court basically said that corporations don't have a right to personal privacy because even though a corporation is a person, it cannot have personal attributes in the same way that the words corn and corny aren't necessarily related. 
a lot to Google that's strange, but I'm happy for what it says. Um, and I love the show, and keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called in the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Lots to cover today. The first thing I want to talk about is uh, to follow up on uh, what Sam from Maryland said. That was the last voicemail we just heard. And and she was referencing a court decision regarding AT&T and FOIA requests and corporate personhood. And the, the decision came out positively, but she reminded me that this is the court decision that has been referred to as uh, one of the funniest decisions in like Supreme Court history. So I wanted to read from you uh, this article by Dahlia Lithwick at Slate Magazine. She's fantastic and a great writer. And so because I, I heard that she wrote this article and that it was funny, I specifically went and found it because I trusted it would be worth my time. And it was. And so now I want to read to it from you. So um, the article uh, generally starts and says, As you may recall from oral argument, the chief spent the better part of an hour poking fun at AT AT&T's claim that the adjective personal means the same thing as the noun person, such that the statute's treatment of corporations as persons means that corporations are also somehow capable of getting personal. As he explained at argument, that claim makes no sense. Quote, I tried to sit down and come up with other examples where the adjective was very different from the root noun. It turns out it is not hard at all. You have craft and crafty. Totally different. Crafty doesn't have much to do with craft. Squirrel, squirrely, right? I mean, pastor. You have a pastor and pastoral. Same root, totally different. And then she continues and, and talks about how in uh, in their written decision, they go on to quote from Webster's comparing the noun crab and crabbed and corn and corny, all those totally different. And the last one, that's the one that uh, Sam referenced on her voicemail. I'm continuing in the article. All of this would be more than enough hijinks for even a good day at the court. But upon reading the opinion in its entirety, it turns out that after robbing AT&T of its last vestiges of corporate personhood, at least for FOIA purposes, the chief's rollicking good mood leads him to pen what may be the funniest closing sentence in opinion writing history. Quote, the protection in FOIA against disclosure of law enforcement information on the ground that it would constitute an unwarranted invasion of personal privacy does not extend to corporations. We trust that AT&T will not take it personally. <laughs> oh my. Zinger. Uh, hold on while I wipe away a tear real quick. Um, boy. Got him. So I'm, I'm so glad that Sam left that voicemail and gave me a chance to tell that story again because I've told it to a personal friend of mine when I first read that article, which, you know, elicited the most profound eye roll I think I've ever gotten in the middle of a conversation. And, uh, and so, but no, it's just fantastic. Cause like, I dare you to find a nerdier joke than that. So anyways, <laughs> love that. And so, okay, a couple more things. Good news. We can all, uh, breathe a huge sigh of relief If you heard my story in the previous show about a woman who I met in Netroots Nation, you will all be uh, very happy to hear that I heard from this woman. Turns out it is Melinda from Kentucky. And uh, so she said a few things in, in her email, including that she's been listening for about four and a half years and has heard every single episode I've ever produced, which, you know, in its own little way, makes me feel even worse for not having talked to her for much, much longer than I did. 
But she does go on to say, I did not think you were rude at all, so don't give it any more thought. Thanks for the great show. So, you know, at least we can put that to bed and I can feel better uh, to some extent. But man, like someone who's been listening for four and a half years, like I should have hung out with her all day. Anyways, uh, one last thing for you. There's a new blog being formed called The Progressive Playbook, and they're looking for contributors. Uh, so I will not even try to describe it myself, and I'll just read from Jenna's email. Jenna informed me about this. She says, The Progressive Playbook is meant not only to inform, but also to inspire. Our number one goal is to give readers all the tools they need to actively pursue change and awareness in their everyday life. With all the radical changes happening across our country, more and more people are beginning to see our side of things. Giving these newcomers access to the facts they need and want is what we are striving for. We're currently looking for a few more columnists and regular contributors, so if any of your listeners are interested in helping to launch this project, they can contact me at progressiveplaybook at gmail.com. Now, the last thing I'm going to say about this is that this project is being put together by a group of listeners of Citizen Radio. They refer to themselves as godless maniacs because that's how the hosts of Citizen Radio refer to their audience. And so I just want to say, like, before you send me an email saying that Citizen Radio is terrible and to beg me to please never play clips from them again, just make sure that you've activated yourself and started a blog from scratch or done something as impactful as these kids do. Like, if there was one takeaway message from Citizen Radio, it is that they constantly ask their listeners to get involved and get active and actually make change in the real world. And, you know, a huge number of uh, their listeners have been involved with the U.S. Uncut program. And now these guys are doing this blog, trying to get uh, information out there about how to get active and get involved in your everyday life, that sort of thing. And I have no doubt that there are thousands of people who are active specifically because of that show that they listen to. So just keep that in mind when you uh, think that it may not be uh, your cup of tea, but for other people, it's exactly what they needed. So again, if you're interested in this project and you want to get involved, contact Jenna at progressiveplaybook at gmail.com. So there we go. Finally, that is it for today. Now I just want to thank a couple of members of mine. Paul D. signed up for a leftist yearly membership back on August 15th, and Donald H. signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on October 2nd. Between members like Paul and Donald and all of the individual donors who contribute to the show, they are absolutely what make this show possible. So huge thanks to all of them. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Please continue to do that. It really does make a huge difference. You can stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.